Welcome to the Jongus Games podcast, where in this episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent impressions vlog. In that video, I discussed my initial impressions of Automania, Era Medieval Age, Throne and the Grail, as well as Watergate. Now, I will be talking about them in that order, and if you'd like to hear about just specific games, then go to the description of this podcast, where you will find timestamps to go to the specific spots that you would like to listen to. Now, at this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes into the Jongus Games Patreon campaign. Now, if you enjoy listening to these vlogs instead of watching them, then please consider supporting that campaign, and you can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash Games. Now, there's one final thing I'd like to ask, and that is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for this vlog. Now, you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast and leave those comments there. All right, let's now start talking about games, and the first one is Automania. Now, this is not a new game. In fact, it came out back in 2015, and I remember when it came out, and I remember being pretty interested in trying it. Uh, now, in this game, players are essentially trying to make the best cars they can, and they are doing that by uh, essentially using a grid-based action selection system in the middle of the board. Now, the way it works is uh, this is a worker placement style game where you have a certain number of workers, and on that grid, you can place your workers down onto the uh, farthest spot over on a row or the top spot on a column. Now, if that spot is empty, then you just put one worker down. But if there are other players' workers there, you have to kick their workers out and put one more worker than they had there in order to do that action. Now, the spot that you put down onto is going to tell you what type of car or what other bonus you might get for that turn. And that row or column that you go into will dictate what token you can take from the middle of the board. Obviously, it has to be in that row or column, and you will then take those square tokens and put them down wherever it makes sense to put them. Uh, now, these might be uh, special uh, pieces of flair that you can have on specific types of cards, and for those, you put them above those cards on your player tableau. Now, you will be building uh, either SUVs or compact cars or sports cars. So if you get a pair of fuzzy dice, then you can put it over one of those three, and then every time you make that type of car, you will essentially do it slightly better than you would have before. Now, there's another type of token, which uh, might be like uh, a speedometer or a little leaf, and those get put down into your actual factory. Now, on your player board, you have um, these different spots for those squares, and then the three types of cars that you make have lines that come out of them, and they kind of go through different paths through those tokens. So what that means is you could take that uh, leaf icon, which means, I guess, it's a fuel-efficient car, and you could put it down onto a spot that will intersect with the SUV as well as the compact cars. That means every SUV and compact car that you make, uh, for the time being anyway, will have that leaf attribute added onto them. So you can uh, really be smart about where you put these down to try and maximize its impact on the cars that you will be uh, building within that given route. Now, whenever you build cars, you have to spend uh, uh, your money in order to do that. It costs more for the fancier cars. And then you will take a car token and put it down onto one of the ships on the board. Uh, now, there are two different sides, and they work essentially the same, but they're slightly different. And the value of that car will dictate where you can put that car token down. So if you make a car and it's worth six stars, let's say, then you would put that car down onto the six-star spot on one of the ships. Or if that spot is taken already, then you have 
have to keep going down. Maybe it'll go into the five-star spot because somebody got in there first and made a six-star car. Um, after that, you can just move on and you are going to keep playing until everybody passes at the end of the round. Now, um, when it's your turn, obviously you're spending those workers. So you're going to go around and around until everybody has decided there's nothing left for them to do. And at that point, players will then sell their cars and you sell them starting with the highest star value car and then you go down. So the more stars that you have on that car, the better off you will be because the first person to sell will get better access to the better selling benefits. There's a little grid on the bottom of the board. Uh, so the first person might get uh, $5 and the second person will only get $3 or something like that. Um, now you also get victory points as one of the decisions that you're making. And essentially one side of the board is a little bit better at making money and the other side of the board is a little bit better at getting you victory points. Um, now that's essentially the game. Once you finish a round, you then reset a new round with new tokens. You, you clear off all of the workers and then you do that. I believe it was four times. And the second half of the game has uh, better, uh, different types of tiles that you bring in. Uh, now I should mention that there is another type of tile that is employees and those go down into an employment area. And the more employees you have, the more expensive new ones are, and they can give you ongoing benefits. Uh, this might give you access to neutral workers that you have for the rest of the game. So you can do more stuff, which is obviously good. Uh, there's also people that might just make every car you make be worth one more star or two more stars. And that is obviously a good thing as well. Uh, now that's again, essentially the, uh, the beat for the overall game. There's some more details. Uh, the order in which you, which you pass will dictate how many sell actions that you will get. And there's some other little stuff going on, but the main thing that you are doing is trying to actually sell these cars as much as you can. Uh, now I suppose I've glossed over the main way that you actually get points. And that is that on either side of the board that you sell to, there is a rotating market of, uh, uh demand tiles essentially. So again, I mentioned before that I can make an SUV or a compact car that are fuel efficient. Well, you look out to the board and you see which side of the board wants fuel efficiency and how badly do they want it. Uh, now there's a nice little flow for these tokens. They kind of fall off one side and pop back up on the other, uh, which is pretty neat, but it means that in one round, maybe fuel efficient cars are in high demand on the left side. And in the next round, maybe nobody wants uh, fuel efficient cars anymore because that kind of fell off of one of the tracks. Uh, so this game is really all about trying to improve your ability to make these high star power cards while also uh, being uh, tactical to try and uh, see what's going to be popular this round, next round, the round after that. You can actually see three rounds in advance. And this is only a four round game. So you can definitely pay a lot of attention to uh, those kind of things, especially for the, uh, the most impactful uh, demand attributes that people are looking for. So uh, we played a four-player game of this on Tabletopia just about a week ago or so, and I have been wanting to play this game for years, and I'm now really happy that I played it. Uh, it was a pretty cool time. I mean, uh, in general, worker placement games... Um, it's not my favorite kind of uh, mechanic in games. I don't dislike it, but it's it's not going to make me excited. But the way this one works, I, I just really like the way this one works. Uh, obviously, you have that grid, so you have that decision of what row or column do I want to take bonuses from, uh, but then the specific row or column will tell you what type of car you can make or other bonuses that you could get. And also, since this is a worker bumping style game, that means if I go onto that spot and kick out two workers and put three down, those two workers I kicked out will go to that player who can then use them to kick somebody else out. So it has this wonderful bumping, 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 and then the round kind of ends uh, a vibe to it instead of a lot of worker placement games where you just 
place, 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 place. Everything's full. Okay, you move on to the next round. So I think that worked out really well. And I loved the way you actually kind of manipulate your cards in your uh, your own personal tableau. Uh, now, I do want to mention that you can play this game with asymmetry between all of the car manufacturing players. And we decided to play with that. Uh, now, my specific uh, ability, my asymmetry, let me uh, do a sell to a spot that somebody had already sold to if we have the same type of car, which was very powerful. Uh, another player had an asymmetry where every single person they hired um, cost one coin instead of having it be more expensive and they could hold six uh, employees instead of the normal limit of four or five, I can't remember specifically. Uh, and so there were different asymmetries around the table. And I have to say that I don't think I like them. Uh, I like the game. Actually, I like Automania quite a bit and I'm looking forward to trying this one more in the future. But the asymmetries, I just don't think they added anything to the game and I'd be hard pressed to say for sure they actually felt balanced overall. One of them um, did not feel really on the power level of the others. And I just feel like in this type of game, you take like one or two turns and suddenly what you do is so drastically different from your opponents that it already feels asymmetric because you are removing those tiles from the middle of the table and removing that option from other people. So, you know, I take that fuel efficient thing, somebody else takes the better tires and now, well, that's a thing that I do that the other people don't do and vice versa. So uh, yeah, in the future, I, I do hope to play this game more and I do not see myself playing with the asymmetries. I just like the idea of an even playing field. Um, I only like asymmetries when they add a lot to the overall gaming experience. And here, I think they almost kind of detracted from it because it was yet another thing to consider and keep in mind, like, wait, what do you do again? Oh, you could do that? Oh, I forgot. I would have done something differently if I'd remembered that you could do that specific special thing. Um, so overall, I, I thought Automania was a really enjoyable time. Um, again, I really liked trying to be tactical with the overall markets. I really like the action selection and tile grabbing mechanics from the middle of the table and the, um, the, the decisions that come into vying for those different spots. Um, it feels like there is a decent amount of player interaction going on here and um, in, in not an overly um, uh, complicated game uh, setting either. Uh, I believe our four-player game probably took about 90 minutes and that's a decent amount of time for me. Um, four players was fine. I would definitely play it at three players as well. Um, so yeah, once again, this one was on Tabletopia. I'm not sure when I'm going to play it again, but I could see myself uh, putting it forward as a game that I would like to play at some point soon in the future. Next up, game number two is Era Medieval Age, and this is a game that came out in the middle of 2019 or so. Uh, now, I've been interested in playing this one pretty much since I first heard about it. Uh, it's designed by Matt Leacock, and it's uh, a re-implementation to a certain extent of his Roll Through the Ages, which I never played, but I have heard lots of good things about. Uh, now, Roll Through the Ages was a game where you would roll dice and you had a little pegboard that you would put pegs into, whereas Era Medieval Age is a game where you roll dice and then you take these big chunky pieces of plastic and you build out a town in front of you in almost a Lego kind of style. Uh, now, I do want to mention that I played this one online just like the rest of these games I've been playing lately, and this was played on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, now, I have wanted to play with the big chunky pieces in real life, and in fact, a local uh, board game cafe has a copy. I just never got around to playing it. But now that we're all sheltering in place, <laughs> I have actually played the game even though it was online. Uh, so the way the game works is uh, simultaneously, each player is going to be going through through a series of phases at the same time. Uh, so you're gonna start off by rolling dice behind a player screen. And in the tabletop simulator mod, you kind of roll it behind a area that only you can see. 
Now, at that point, you now have the opportunity to do up to two rerolls. But the catch here is that every single die in the game has one face that has a corruption symbol on it. And if you ever roll a die that shows a corruption symbol, then you are not allowed to reroll that die unless something special lets you do that. So the more rerolls you do, the more likely you are to hit skulls. And skulls, in general, aren't great, although sometimes they're actually pretty good. Now, uh, once everybody has finished their rerolls, you will reveal your screens and then you will proceed to take resources that might show up on your dice. Maybe you have food or stone or wood, and then you have to feed your dice because your dice are essentially your population. So you have to spend one food for every die. And then after that, in player order, you are all going to build. Uh, now you're going to use little building uh, symbols and then you look to a big sheet of paper that has all of the different uh, uh, costs for each building. And then you spend things like like uh, maybe trade goods, stone, and uh, wood in order to take these uh, buildings and you put them down onto your board. Um, now, these do a wide variety of things. Uh, some of them are very simple, like walls that you will put out onto your board to try and enclose areas because at the end of the game, every building inside a fully enclosed walled area is going to be worth twice its normal points. So that is certainly significant. Now, there are other buildings like farms, which will uh, let you um, get more food. I think, I can't remember the specifics, but um, there are buildings that give you automatic food each turn. There are buildings that give you new dice that roll food well, but again, every die is gonna cost you one food, so you have to make sure that you have the food to be able to afford all this stuff. Um, so there are also a bunch of more complicated buildings that give you different scoring uh, patterns and abilities and ways to fend off um, bad things that come from corruption dice and all those sorts of different things. Uh, now you're trying to fit all these things in together. And in particular, if you roll a certain number of corruption symbols, I can't remember, I think it's two, then you are going to suffer a penalty for every building that you have that is orthogonally adjacent to another one of your buildings. So you are incentivized to not have your buildings be next to each other, but this board isn't all that big. So if you spread out too much, then you might run out of space to actually um, put new buildings in. And of course, you're trying to enclose these high scoring buildings in walls, and the more spread out you are, the more walls you need. Now, there is a limited supply of all of the different plastic pieces in the game. So a big part of this game is just trying to get in and get the good stuff before other people do. Uh, all of the walls have the same cost, so building walls early is good because you will deplete from the big wall piece supply, but if you build a bunch of walls early, you might not be sure exactly where you want to wall around, and it's certainly possible to bite off more than you can chew, trying to wall off a really big area and then not be able to finish it off, which means you don't double all of those points. Now, um, there are ways to interact with your opponents, and those come in uh, not only with depleting the supply of the buildings and walls that people want, but also those skull icons. Now, I said usually skulls are bad, but there are a couple of instances where if you have an exact number, I think if you hit three of the skulls, no longer does it hurt you, but now everyone else has to put the scorched land tile down onto the area. I think it's a two by two, which is just area that they cannot build onto. And then if I, you roll four skulls, I think it's really bad for you, and then five skulls, it's really bad for all of your opponents and they like have to lose a building because they all get attacked. So there's this weird kind of push your luck thing with the skulls where if you have a couple skulls, maybe you do re-roll to try and get another skull to get to three so that you affect everyone else instead of affecting yourself. But what if you re-roll and now hit four instead of two and oh man, that's really bad. I don't actually remember what that was. I've only played once, but I don't remember it being a good thing. Uh, so there are a lot of decisions to make as you're rolling these dice. And I played a three-player game of this and the mod was uh, quite good overall with like revealing and hiding different things uh, to kind of simulate the uh, barriers going up and down. And all of us really liked the game. I think we were all uh, quite taken by it, actually. At the start, 
we were a bit overwhelmed by the massive uh, sheet that tells you um, what different things cost. You're like, okay, I'm going to build something and I have all these options and I have all this wood and all this stone. Every single building does something different. What does it all do? But I found about halfway through the game, I kind of knew what buildings I wanted to build. And I am hoping to play this one more in the future. I haven't actually been able to make that happen just yet, but I, I actively want to play this more. And I think with more plays, I should be able to uh, really kind of memorize, at least remember enough what the different buildings do and what I'm trying to go for with those. So uh, in our play, um, it ended a little bit strangely. I did very poorly in this game. Uh, so that's saying a lot about the game that I actively really want to play it again, despite making some awful decisions and having a terrible score. But I did cause the game to end because uh, my opponents didn't notice, uh, in particular one opponent uh, didn't notice that there was just one piece left in one of the supplies that could be taken. And the game is going to end at the end of a round when a certain number of the buildings are depleted. So that friend I remember watching, they um, built first before me and they could have closed off their walls, but they didn't. They got a little bit too greedy. They took something else, assuming there'd be another round. And then at that point I knew I was losing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to stem the flow. I'm just going to stop this game. I bought that last building. It wasn't awful for me. It gave me a decent number of points actually. Um, but I still came in third place. And <laughs> when my friend calculated up, if he had built a wall instead of that other building, it was like 30, 5% of his score that he would have had. He would have blown the game out. So he ended up in second place. I ended up in third. But if he had built that one piece of wall to just lock in that doubling of the scoring of the, the buildings inside, he would have easily won the game. So we all kind of went away from that feeling like, well, there was a first game. Like we're all kind of doing weird, silly things. I certainly made some mistakes. I was like, ah, the penalty for putting things next to each other, it only comes up when you roll two skulls. So I'm just going to try not to roll two skulls. So I put buildings next to each other to be efficient and I kept rolling two skulls, which I mean, I guess it's going to happen somewhat often. So in the future, I will definitely try to avoid putting my buildings next to each other until I absolutely have to. Uh, that was a big uh, going away point for me overall. So um, yeah, we really enjoyed it. I liked how quick it was. It was easily under an hour. Um, it might seem like maybe I ended the game a little bit early, but I think it only had another two or three rounds left in it if people weren't going for that specific building anyway, uh, maybe even just one or two rounds. So yeah, this is a cool game. It plays up to four players. And once again, I did play this on Tabletop Simulator. So I should probably circle back and say that this is not a cheap game if you want to buy it and play it in real life. I think the MSRP is close to $100. Don't quote me on that. Maybe it's more like 80, but it's it's well over 70 or $60. It's an expensive game that takes up a decent amount of space on your shelf. And I have heard some controversy about that. And the uh, the thing that I've heard back from the publisher, um, just in general, is that they said we want they wanted to make a high quality kind of premium product. And that comes with a premium price because there are just tons of molded plastic pieces in this box. So you definitely see why it is expensive. And this is a game that I would not mind having a copy of. I'm not sure if I'm going to run out and buy it. I'm definitely going to try to play it a couple more times on Tabletop Simulator, but I, I really liked the flow of it. I really liked the city building nature of it. Um, when playing it online with some decent models, some 3D models, I still liked the feeling of actually building this town together. And um, yeah, I, I think I would like to play this one in real life. Uh, now, again, there's a copy of it at my local uh, board game cafe. So maybe I'll just play it there or maybe I'll try to get a copy. I'm not really sure yet, but one thing I am sure about is that I would like to play this one more in the future. 
All right, let's now move on to the third game I'll be discussing, and that is Throne and the Grail. Now, this was published in 2016, and I had not heard of it until just last night when I was playing two-player games with a friend of mine online. Uh, now, he didn't know anything about it either. It was just recommended to him from another friend. So we loaded it up on Tabletop Simulator. There is a mod for it there, and we quickly read the rules and then played a game of it. Now, the way the game works is you are going to play through four rounds, and you are going to draw five cards at the start of each round, and then you you will just alternate taking turns back and forth. Now, on your turn, you will either play a card or you will take cards from the middle of the table. And as you play cards down, they will make a line. So when you take cards, you're gonna take up to five and you will take the five most recent cards from the end of that line. Now you're only allowed to take cards once per round and you only play four rounds in this game. So the whole game takes like 20, 25 minutes or so and you're only taking cards four times throughout it. So that means when you're playing through the round, you're gonna maybe start by playing some cards out and you need to decide at what moment is it best for you to take cards because that's your only time doing it in the round. And if you still have four cards left in your hand and then you're just gonna have to play those cards out in a way to try and mitigate the amount of points that your opponent can get from those cards. Now, let's talk a little bit about the cards that are in the middle of the table. Uh, once you finish four rounds, you're gonna count up your points. And one type of card in the middle of the table is simple. It's just positive points or negative points. The next type of card say either five, six, seven, or eight. And these will be worth five, six, seven, or eight points if you have a majority of that card in front of you. So um, obviously you want to get those eights more more than the fives, but there are also eight eights in the deck, seven sevens, six sixes, and five fives. So the higher point value cards will be more contentious because there are more cards in the deck to try and divide for them. Now, there is one more type of card in the deck, and that is the Grail pieces. Now, this game is called Throne and the Grail, and one thing that you can do in this game is try to put the Holy Grail back together again. Now, it's split up into three different pieces, and if you are able to have all three Grail pieces in your area after taking cards, then you actually just win the game immediately. You don't count up any victory points. So that means, as you're playing the game, you essentially have two different things that you are balancing. You are obviously trying to vie for majorities in these different types of cards versus your opponent. You're obviously trying to put cards out so that they take negative point cards instead of you. And maybe you try to uh, complete the Holy Grail to just win the game outright. Uh, now, in our play, um, that's kind of what ended up happening. <laughs> we went a couple rounds into the game, and after two full rounds, I was starting to feel like I had made some pretty big blunders early on, and uh, I was not probably going to be able to compete with the score that my opponent had. So at that point, I had, I think, one Grail piece, and in the third round, I took another, and at that point, I was just like, you know what? I need to try and win this game on Grails. Now, that was a bit risky because remember, at the start of the game, you randomly pull three cards out of this deck of 45 cards. And if any of those are a Grail piece, then it's impossible to complete the Grail. So there was a chance that I was going down a path that was never going to win me the game, but I tried it anyway. Uh, so we went into the fourth round of the game. I had two Grail pieces. I drew my last five cards, and uh, there was the last Grail piece. Now, this was problematic for me because I was going first, and the person who goes first alternates each round. And that means I'm going to take six actions. My opponent is also going to take six actions and they will take the last action of the game. So if I wait until my very last action and place the grail down, I'm still never going to be able to take it. So they are always able to take it away from me. What that meant is that last round was all about me trying to entice my opponent into just taking cards and 
assuming that the Holy Grail piece was out of the game. I tried to put all these big numbered cards down to make them take cards early because, again, you can only take cards once per round. And if they did take early before I did, then I would just win because I would play my Grail piece and the next turn I would take it, have it, I'd have all three pieces, and I would win. Now, unfortunately for me, my opponent is a smart person and uh, they kind of saw that coming. Uh, they looked at their hand and they did not see the last piece. And so they knew that it was either in my hand or out of the game. They knew that they were in a uh, position to kind of wait things out. So they did that. Um, so I did the best I could. They never took the bait. Um, I ended up having to play the gra uh, Grail card out. They took it. The game ended up being over once we played all of our cards, and I, I, won, I lost by a pretty large margin. But I don't know. Overall, this is a pretty cute game. You know, the decisions um, are there. Like, you definitely need to think about the order in which you put these cards out because, again, you only take from the back end. And it's definitely possible to try and set things up for yourself and have your opponent grab or try to make things bad for your opponent. Ha! <laughs> and then realize, oh, man, I... Actually, I'm the person who needs to take these negative points that I put in there. And um, that's kind of the story of how this game went last night. I definitely took negative point cards that I put down, and my opponent definitely took positive point cards that I put down. Uh, so yeah, at the end, I think this is a cute game. Um, it's definitely not one that I'm going to be racing out to play again, but it's one that I could see myself playing again in the future if uh, it's just the two of us, uh, two people wanting to play a game and, and we want to play something uh, quite light overall. Uh, so it's possible I'll play this one again. I certainly won't be looking for a copy of it, um, even though it's 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 a fine gaming experience overall. I, I am curious about how randomness could come into play with um, the cards that you're getting and I did not love that the starting player just alternated each round, each of the four rounds. Um, I kind of wish there was maybe just a little bit more to the game that would have the starting player be contingent on something else so that you would not have a situation like I had where I essentially lost the game based off of the deal of those cards that came out of the deck. Uh, again, my opponent could have played into a trap I was trying to set, but he didn't, and obviously I didn't win. So uh, that's Thrown in the Grail. It's it's a game that uh, flew under my radar. I'd certainly never heard of it. I'm glad I got to play it, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if I never actually get around to playing it again. At this point, we've reached the fourth and final game I'll be discussing, and that one is Watergate. Now, this is also a two-player only game, and I got to play this one last night uh, when I was playing a bunch of two-player games, and I also played this one a couple of nights ago as well, so I've actually played this one twice. Uh, now, this game had a pretty decent amount of buzz near the mid to late uh, part of 2019, and this is an asymmetric two-player only game where you are reliving the Watergate era, essentially. I mean, the game is called Watergate. So, one player is playing as the Nixon administration, and the other player is playing as the editors, essentially the news people trying to break the case and try to expose all of the corruption and stuff that was happening inside the Nixon administration, specifically in the uh, Watergate scandal. Now, the way this game works is it essentially borrows the Twilight Struggle main uh, action system where on your turn in Watergate, you play a card and that card either has an event that you will use or it has an, a number of action points that you can use. Um, Twilight Struggle did that as well as 1960, Making of the President, and 13 Days. There's lots of games that kind of use this and I think all of them kind of stem from Twilight Struggle. And what that this um, means is you're gonna be looking at a hand of cards as you're playing this game and you are really considering all of these different events down at the bottom, and they all very thematically match up with things that happened during Watergate, and they can do some really powerful things, but the events can also be somewhat situational versus you could play a card for the action points along the top, which let you do a couple of different things. Now, in Watergate, the way the uh, Nixon player wins is they just need to essentially 
wait out the other player. They either win if the game goes to the very end and uh, the editors haven't won, or the Nixon player wins if they take five of these momentum tokens. Now, the momentum token is on a track that also has an initiative token, which dictates who will go first in the next round, and a bunch of evidence that starts out face down, but the Nixon player can see it. Now, when you spend those action points, you will be manipulating the evidence, the momentum token, and the initiative token, and you have to decide which one of those do you actually want to manipulate with those actions. Now, at the end of the round, you will take everything that's on your side of that research track in the middle. So it's essentially a tug of war with a bunch of different things being tugged on at the same time. Uh, now, I said that Nixon wins if they get five of those momentum tokens, which they get if it's on their side of the track at the end of a round. But the editors win if they are able to tie evidence from Nixon to two of the um, conspirators. I think that's what they're called. Um, uh, two of the people that were part of the uh, conspiracy anyway. Uh, now, the way that works is there's a map in the middle of the table with Nixon in the middle and all of these wonderful connection points with yarn, like, you know, the thumbtacks and yarn kind of trope with the uh, detective's board. Um, now, the uh, editors are going to need to bring into play the uh, co-conspirators, and then they are going to have to try and win those pieces of evidence by bringing them to their side of that research track, and then they place them down, trying to make an actual path between Nixon and those co-conspirators. Now, again, the editors win if they are able to match two of those up, and the uh, Nixon player is going to be doing lots of things to mess that up. Uh, the Nixon player can play cards to make it so that the editors cannot bring out those specific co-conspirators. And also, if evidence ends on the Nixon player's side of the track, then Nixon can put it down face down on the map, essentially killing off that one zone. Now, that's essentially the way the game works overall. I guess I should mention when you play cards for events, they go away permanently, but if you play them for their action points, they will cycle back into your deck and you'll keep playing through your deck. So you're playing through round after round as you're trying to push towards your own specific victory condition. And there are a few other little things I'm not going to talk about mechanically, but uh, now I'd like to talk about how the game felt to play and what our two plays were like. Now, in the first play, I was the editors and my friend Dave uh, played as the Nixon administration. And this game was not close. Uh, Nixon won by a, a pretty big uh, amount. And I think part of that is because I played a couple things not super great, like I definitely made a couple blunders, but there was also some luck involved in this game because um, as I was playing out co-conspirator cards as the editor, um, it just so happened, well, not just so happened, I, I planned around trying to get two co-conspirators that were really close to each other on the map. That way I could try to make the connection between them kind of share evidence to be more efficient. Uh, now, in this case, they were both blue uh, co-conspirators near the blue area of the map, and as soon as that kind of became my strategy, we went through two full rounds where there wasn't a single piece of evidence that came out that was blue. Now, that means I was not able to make those connections, and there was other evidence coming out. There was yellow evidence and green evidence, but I didn't need those, and I wasn't getting the cards to try and connect those up. I kept getting yellow evidence, and I was trying to connect a yellow person up, but Nixon was able to get in the way and make this massive wall, kind of stopping that to a certain extent. And uh, the game ended after, uh, there were a couple rounds left, and it was, again, not particularly close. Um, now, the Nixon player has this card called Gambit, and this card when played, lets them just take the momentum token for that round. So again, remember, it's a uh, tug of war, push and pull, and if it's on your side, you get to keep it, and Nixon wins if he gets five of those momentum tokens. Well, they have one card that they just play to just automatically take it in that round, and then it's removed from the game 
unless the Nixon player does have another type of card, um, um, conspirators, I can't, I'm getting my terminology confused, but another type of card in their deck that they could get rid of that card and keep the gambit in their deck to then cycle through and then play it again to again automatically get a momentum token. Now, in my uh, first game, uh, my opponent was able to do that twice. Uh, so two out of their five momentum tokens were taken um, without me even really being able to fight that. And that was, that was a little bit rough overall. So the luck of the blue not coming out and then him being able to pull off that double gambit thing, um, it felt not great overall, but I still enjoyed the game, and I, and I felt like I made a lot of mistakes too, so um, uh, Dave and I ended up playing it again the next night, or two nights ago, it was last night, and this time we reversed the roles, so now I was Nixon, Dave played as the editors, and uh, we proceeded to play through the game, and it was a lot closer in this game, and I think part of the reason I lost so hard as the editors was that I let Nixon get too many momentum tokens early on in the game. In my mind, I was like, I'm the editors, I need evidence. Nixon needs five whole momentum. I'll let him take a couple of them early so I could get a lot of evidence to try and start working on the stuff and then put on the pressure for momentum later. Now, the problem with that is that I didn't know that Gambit card existed, <laughs> so that was a big problem. And so when we played a second time, now that we both know all of the cards in the decks, um, my, Dave, as the editor, went really hard on momentum right from out of the gate. Uh, the editors get some bonuses once they get their third, fourth, and fifth momentum token. And uh, so it was pretty contentious. The, it was like he would get one, I would get one. He would get one, I would get one. But while all that was happening, my strategy as Nixon was I wanted to shut down all of the uh, the people that Nixon was trying to be connected with around the map. So I kept playing cards to shut out a person, shut out a person. And by the end of the third round, I think I had shut out all but two. Uh, now, Dave was able to enable those two, but they were nowhere near each other on the map. And that meant that most of the map was not really in play. And I was able to really hone in my efforts of, of uh, putting evidence down face down to really mess up with uh, Dave overall. So this game was a lot closer. And I think that is largely because we were both experienced with the game overall, but Nixon still won uh, in, in this game. And it does seem like Nixon's pretty strong in this game overall, which is interesting because that's not how history actually played itself out. Uh, but uh, in this second play, we went to the very last round. And again, if at the end of the last round, the editors haven't won, then Nixon just automatically wins. But going into that last round, I, as Nixon, was in a very strong position. Um, the editors needed green evidence to come out. Uh, one piece of green evidence did come out, but I played a card to get rid of it. So now there was no green evidence, which means the editors, it was pretty much impossible for them to win at that point. Um, now, one thing they were trying to do was enable one of the people I had gotten rid of. They kind of emptied that and they kept trying to put a person in and Nixon has a card that can cancel the uh, events being played by the opponent. So there are a lot of canceling back and forth. And at the end, we all, we, we enjoyed it. it. I'm glad it was closer, but I walked away from it feeling like, man, Nixon's really powerful. And I actually went on to BoardGameGeek and I was kind of curious. I like typed into the Watergate forums, like, um, is this game balanced? Like, is this one of those games that's well known to be not balanced? Uh, I know there are some two-player games uh, like uh, Lord of the Rings Confrontation where it's, it was designed that um, the uh, the hobbits are, are in a weaker position. Like, you, it's not a balanced situation. It's, it's hard to actually overcome. But I didn't see anything saying that Nixon was supposed to be more powerful. I did find one forum thread where somebody was asking, how do I play the editors better? I have played 11 times and Nixon has won all 11 times. And that's an interesting data point. Uh, there were some people who replied saying that um, the editors can win if they go really hard on momentum and do some various other things. So I'm not sitting here saying that the editors are never going to win. But um, I've also asked a couple other friends who have played and it seems like 
they've seen Nixon win a lot more than the editors as well. And so it seems to me like it's easier to win as Nixon, or at least there's less barriers to that win. It seems like there's a lot more that can go wrong for the editors. Uh, I think that in order for the editors to win, they have to maybe play the game a little bit more differently or maybe go for specific strategies, which would be a little bit concerning. Uh, I definitely wouldn't want that to be the case. And again, my personal data set is only two games, but um, I'm a little disheartened by that feeling overall. I would have liked to have it feel a little bit more like it was on equal ground. But at the same time, I do want to say that I am planning on playing this game more. Um, an entire game of Watergate takes like 45 minutes to play. Um, even your first play maybe is an hour. So it's not terribly long. And I really liked the things I was doing. And I'm honestly kind of curious to try and see if I can uh, play different ways and see if there are ways for the editors to win. See if maybe this is just kind of a bad luck situation and maybe we'll play a game and editors will win easily at some point. But I don't know until I actually see that happen, and I won't see that happen if I don't keep playing it. Uh, so I think it's pretty likely that I'll play this one again in the future, uh, specifically if it's just like two of us playing online. I know that Dave has enjoyed his two plays of it as well. Uh, he seemed to agree that Nixon seemed a little bit strong, maybe not as in agreement uh, with me on it entirely, but um, I think we're both curious to, to feel out the system a little bit more and see what's going on there. So uh, Watergate is a cool game. Uh, I'm not sure if it potentially being imbalanced actually does hurt the game overall. I mean, I think going into playing the game as the editors, knowing that it's an uphill battle, makes it a little bit better when you lose. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to trying out the editors more. I'm looking forward to playing Watergate more. It's a really neat game. It's a good distillation down of the Twilight Struggle system. And I guess uh, one thing I do want to mention is that um, if you're at all experienced with Twilight Struggle, um, in that game, both of the people draw from the same deck and there are cards that are good for one side and cards that are good for the other. And I really didn't like how that felt in the game. I ended up getting rid of my copy of Twilight Struggle like seven years ago um, because I just didn't like drawing cards from the opponent. But in Watergate, they fixed that because each player has their own dedicated deck. And I really do like that uh, change to the overall Twilight Struggle card play system. So every card that you draw is going to be good. The decision is really just, is it played for points or is it played for an event? Maybe you play it for points right now to save that event so that next time it shows up in your hand, it's a little bit better situation for you overall. So there's lots of things that you can think about. And there's lots of ways that this game can uh, turn from one way to the other. So uh, I think I'm kind of circling back on myself now. I'm just going to say that um, I enjoyed it. I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it in the long run, but it's a game I could see myself playing a couple more times. Well, that's going to bring this impressions vlog to a close. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely talked about a couple of uh, two-player only games, which is something I don't normally do in uh, general. Uh, I oftentimes don't play two-player only games, but it seems like playing things online has uh, motivated that to happen a little bit more, which is certainly interesting. I do enjoy uh, two-player only games. It's an interesting uh, way to play a game when it just has one single player count. So obviously the game is honed and designed in around that instead of trying to be equally balanced for two, three, and four players in one. So yeah, I think that is going to bring this podcast to a close. Again, if you have any questions or comments about anything that I've said today, then please click the link in the description of this podcast to go over to the vlog page and then leave your comment there. Thanks for listening.